Well, good morning. My name's Ross Gilbert. I'm the, the lead pastor here. If you don't haven't had a chance to meet me yet, <clears throat> that's my, my very good friend and a hero of mine, Frank. And I would highly recommend him to anyone uh, to, to find out about his ministry and, and what he's teaching and how he's communicating. And uh, he said his website, uh, ourresolutehope.com, that's now launched, uh, or frankfreeman.com, if you, and it will just send you over to the Our Resolute one. And uh, you can sign up there for emails or you're on Facebook and all that sort of thing. And watch his messages. He's got short ones and long ones. And uh, it will be a real blessing, I think, uh, uh, into your lives. So uh, I want to do a reminder. We've got, we got the mic up here. <clears throat> oh, that was a mistake in front of the speaker. Um, we got a mic up here, and I'm going to we'll leave it there just as an opportunity for anyone who wants to to share something. If you, if you think God's put something on your heart that you want to share with the congregation, that some kind of a blessing or encouragement, then, then we welcome that. And uh, just go see either Josh or Robin. They'll be at the back there. Uh, and just kind of share with them what you want to share. And they'll kind of bring you up here. And that's, that goes for any part of the service. It, it can go on during the worship. Uh, next week, it's, it's just a standing thing. Uh, speaking, though, of, of Josh and Robin, I think Robin's right now is downstairs still taking the kids to Sunday school. But uh, Josh and Robin um, are, they've been sitting with the elders. And so what that means is, is right now, Greg and I are the, the two elders of the church, but we've been having Josh and Robin sit with us uh, because we, we've kind of believed that God's leading them to take on that role of being an elder. And so we've known them for quite a bit of time and, uh, and have formed an opinion of them that we'll just keep to ourselves for now. But, um, but we do want to invite other people because, you know, maybe you guys know things about, about Josh and, and Robin that we don't know. And so we want to invite you guys to come and speak to Greg and myself if there are any concerns that you have about them becoming elders. So uh, we know about Josh's cocaine problem, so we don't need to know about that. So other problems would be, be very welcomed. So... All right. Did I out you, Josh? I'm, I'm sorry. All right. In honor of Josh, though, um, I'm, I'm going to honor him because I don't, I've noticed that when Josh does a message, he likes to give a title and then gives a subtitle. Right. So I'm going to I'm going to try and do something like that in a minute. Um, but I, I was thinking about that and I got thinking about the subtitle aspect of things like the subtitle to me is kind of weird. Right. I mean, the fact you think about it, like you're trying to pick a title and you got a number of different options to go with. And then you finally choose the winner, the best title. And that's the main title. And then the subtitle is basically the second runner up. Right. The first loser. And and I guess that's important in case the main title gets into some kind of a scandal or trouble and needs to be dropped. And then the first runner up can take over the reign and the crown, right? So that's, I guess, the reason for it. So my message in honor of, uh, of Josh, my message title is Jesus has broken down the barriers. That's the title. But the subtitle is really a reference to Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It's one man to rule them all, one man to find them, one man to bring them all into the light and bind them. So for you fellow Lord of the Rings nerds that I love, because uh, I love that series, uh, you're welcome. So, all right. I regularly hear uh, pastors being told that they need to make the scriptures relevant to today. And that's sort of a, a call that's often given to people. And, um, <clears throat> and I understand their heart and what they're trying to say in there, but I think it's a, it's a misinformed or at the very least an underinformed understanding of the scriptures. 
Trying to make the scriptures relevant to today would imply that the scriptures have a best before date. That they, they were relevant at a time, but they've lost the relevancy, and now it's the job of the, the pastor to kind of freshen up the ideas, a little tweak, a little change here and there, to make it more applicable to today's congregation or today's society. But the reality is there is no best before date on the scriptures. That the scriptures don't need to be made relevant because they simply are relevant. It's what they are all the time. And so what we really need to do is we need to let the scriptures speak for themselves because there's, there's no book out there that better understands the human condition than, than Father's word does. And it's why, it's why we teach week after week. We teach from the scriptures because you don't really want my opinion or any of our opinions. We want to understand what is Father saying to us? What does Father want to, to bless us with? And so I'm reminded of the timelessness of the power of, of Father's word every time I go and I study it. And, and this week was no different. I mean, here we are living in a, a society in a world that's about 2,000 years removed from when the Apostle Paul wrote this passage. And yet I'm reading it, and it it's the directly speaks to where we are today. And so if you think about what's going on, you know, the last few weeks have been a very difficult time for many Canadians. Think about what's going on. Nationally, we have this ongoing strife about the legitimacy of a, a construction of a pipeline in northern BC that's led to all kinds of protests and shutting down railways and loss of jobs and, and so forth. Uh, provincially, we've got the ongoing struggle with the teacher strike and, uh, and the unions and the provincial government and trying to get along there. Uh, and then all that is on the heels of the federal election, which was probably one of the most uninspiring and ugly, nastiest elections that I can think of, where basically it came down to who do you trust, the person who wore blackface and doesn't remember the last time and how many times he did it, versus the person who's got a secret agenda based on his religion to remove women's rights and so forth. And so really it came down to who do I dislike the most? Uh, and that may be true for a lot of elections, but this one always seemed to be really uninspiring. And so that's the, the world we live in. And what, what I'm seeing more and more is this phrase starting to pop up where this phrase identity politics and how that plays and how that changes how we view things and so forth. Does scripture, does it really speak to this generation of, of identity politics? Does something written 2,000 years ago in the time of emperors and Caesars, millennium before democracy ever shows up, does it actually speak to today? And the good news is absolutely it does. It absolutely does. And so my hope this morning, as we, as we go and study this passage and we see what Father says, dig deep as Frank likes to put it, that what you and I will see is the hope for today. The hope that, that Jesus offers this very dark world that we get to offer not just to ourselves, but then we get to offer to our neighbors and our family and our friends and so forth. So let's read our passage this morning. We're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. So Paul writes, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, 
who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that he himself might make the two into one man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. Let's pray. Father God, we live in this dark world. We live in a world of hurt and pain, of strife and enmity and fights and conflict. And you have come into this world through your son, Jesus, to redeem us. Lord Jesus, we ask this morning that we would understand and see how you can unite people who have such great division, great struggle and strife, and bring peace and wholeness to relationships. In your name we pray, amen. So I said earlier that one of the dominant themes in our generation seems to be this idea of identity politics. And there are many different uh, definitions out there that we could try to figure out what does that mean and what does that look to. And and they kind of tilt one in a way or another, depend on how uh, the internal bias of the author of that definition is. But here's the definition that we're going to use this morning. And and maybe you might take some nuances on some of the details, and that's okay. we're going to try to get to the heart of it. But, but if you're unfamiliar with the phrase identity politics, here's a simplified definition. It is the tendency for people of a particular trait, characteristic, or belief, could be race, religion, gender, worldview, sexuality, or ethnicity, to organize politically around that special interest for the sole purpose of advancing that interest without concern or regard for any larger group or collective. So essentially, it's rallying one identity, one group that rallies around that one idea, that one identity, to go and fight against or to advocate against another group based on a different uh, identity. So here's how it works. Here's kind of a a step-by-step guide, as it were, to using identity politics to your advantage. Step one is you find a common enemy. Right, you find a, uh, find people that share this common enmity or hatred or opposition towards someone or someone else. So there's a very old old Bedouin proverb, and it said this: that that I am against my brothers, but I and my brothers were against my cousins, but I and my brothers and my cousins were against strangers. We're against the world. And so now what I can do is, is, although I don't agree with my brother, I don't agree with my cousin, we can all come together because what we do agree is we don't like strangers. And so that was, that's, I mean, this idea here of just trying to find who do we all not like and let's rally together against that one common enemy. And so we may not agree on everything, but we do agree that we don't like fill in the blank. Step two then is unite others against that enemy to increase your power. Right? So what we want to do now is we want to come together and, and develop a strength and power that will then go against the other person, increasing our own power. And so basically, if you're not for us, you're against us becomes the idea here. And that's a very powerful concept because people have a great desire to belong, but they also have a great fear of being rejected. And so this idea of, well, may, I'm not sure where I stand, but if I'm, if I'm not for you, I might be against you. Well, I don't want to be against you, and therefore, I'm going to make sure that I stand with you. 
And so that might be playing into that. And then the final step then is you fight against the enemy by weakening them and their power and therefore strengthening your own position in power. So what you begin to do is you begin to undermine this enemy by marginalizing them in their identity. You undermine their moral authority, their right to speak, their right even maybe to exist. You condemn them as being unjust, unfair, racist, evil, Anything that basically, anyone that supports them must be evil too by extension and therefore you're isolating that group and therefore they're losing their strength and their power. Now an example of this, and I think it's a powerful example, but it, it's, it's a, it shows to me I think the devastating power of identity politics is really goes the story back to, to Hitler and the Nazi party. I mean, Adolf Hitler and his, his National Socialistic Party, better known as the Nazi party, what they did is they rose to power over a decade. And what they were doing is they basically were able to rally around a common enemy. And there were a few, but one in particular were the Jews, where, where the typical German would look at the Jews and were jealous of their wealth and their power and their influence. And so Hitler was able to rally that common hatred around that one group and thereby was able to justify why it was okay to take their wealth, take their freedoms, take their power, and take their voice and imprison them because they were no longer seen as of equal value. They were called subhuman. And not only the Jews, then it expanded to anyone that didn't fit their idea of what the ideal was. So whether that be homosexuals, whether that be uh, blacks or any people of color or the handicapped, anyone that was seen subhuman, they were, it, was, it was okay to treat them as such. So what does that look like today? Because again, identity politics is being played out all over the place. So it looks like a few different things. You've got on one side, you've got the conservatives and they gather around and they're rallying around against the CBC and the elites. And those are the evil people. But then on the other side of the political spectrum, you've got the liberals and rallying against the secret agenda of the evil uh, far-right, alt-right conservatives. Or you might have big oil, big pharma, big banks, big business, Mr. Big Chocolate Bars, anything big in front of something, right? All against the little guy. Or you'd have unions and workers against the government. Uh, you have Black Lives Matter versus the authority and the police. Capitalism versus socialism. LGBTQ rights versus the moral authority or moral majority. You have Democrats versus Trump. You've got Trump versus... Anyone, right? Anyone, just whoever comes to his mind sitting on the toilet with his phone and, and Twitter open, right? So my, my point here is saying is that it's not political, <clears throat> sorry, identity politics is not the tool of one side in the political spectrum. Every side uses it. It's used on both sides, left and right and everything in between. It, it's really just the question of, what is the unique trait that we're going to use as the rallying cry to go against this enemy? And as my illustration with the Nazi party showed, this is far from a new phenomenon, right? Virtually every revolution has operated on this principle of identity politics in some way, whether it be the, the Russian Bolshevik revolution where the Marxists rose up against the czars, whether it be communist Cuba and the uprising of Fidel Castro, even America, when they rose up against King George and the red, Redcoats of Britain. It's been used over and over again. And you might think, well, isn't that, isn't that good? I mean, you think about this, World War II. We, we kind of rallied against Hitler. Wasn't that a good thing to demonize the Nazi party and make that? 
It was in a sense that the purpose there was not to establish a particular identity, but to protect and grow so that that identity wasn't what mattered anymore. It wasn't trying to entrench that identity. So examples of, I think, would be of, of common good ones would be the abolition of slavery or the civil rights movement in America or giving women the right to vote and to, to serve in parliament. All of those would be great examples of how identity politics could be played out in a positive way. But I got to stop right here because if I go any further, then I'm going to start to go on a rant and then I start giving you my opinion. And I said earlier, it's not my job to give my opinion. It's my job to teach you Father's word. So we have a general understanding, hopefully, of what identity politics is. But what I want to see is how does Jesus fit into all this? So now we're going to come back to our passage. But to do that, what I want you to understand is that if there's one group that has experienced a lot of this negative attacks, it would be the Jews. I mean, long before Hitler targeted the Jews, they have been attacked by many, many different groups. And they've been persecuted many, many times over. In fact, at the time that Paul's writing this message, it was a hundred years, for about a hundred years, the Jews had been under the domination of the Roman Empire. They had been under this Roman authority. And so they had felt this persecution. And so it was very easy for them to, to create their whole identity around who they were. And so for the, for the Jew, you know, they had to hold on to the identity for fear of losing it. So their Jewishness was everything. It would be their culture, being their, their language, uh, how they dress. Um, it would be, uh, you know, the fact that their men were circumcised. Uh, but maybe the biggest thing, the thing that they would hold on to the most was the law. I mean, this is the Mosaic law. This is the, the law that God himself handed down to, to Moses on Mount Sinai, thereby establishing the Jews, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as the chosen people of God, as special and unique and powerful. And so they, they built their whole identity around that aspect, and that's what allowed them to separate themselves from the world. And so you can imagine now, this is the scenario, and this is the situ situation when the church is born. And when the church is first born, it's all Jewish. You have all Jewish disciples. You have all people initially coming to, to, to faith in Christ. We're all Jews. It wasn't until a little while later that Gentiles would finally begin to be welcomed in. And now the Gentiles are beginning to join the church. Think about that, what that would have been like for the Jews where suddenly their persecutor, their overlords, their enemy, the people they've grown up their whole lives to learn, don't ever trust these people. They're now being welcomed in? To, to put it into context, it'd be like a Black Lives Matter meeting inviting former KKK members in. How do you think that would go? Recipe for strife and conflict. Right? You have two groups of people here that are really wondering, can I trust this other person? I mean, my whole life I've been told I can't. And now you're telling me I can? What's going on here? What makes it possible? And so that's, that's the scenario that the Apostle Paul is writing to, that he's speaking to. And you'll see it over and over again, this, this conflict, this turmoil between Jew and Gentile throughout the New Testament. 
So he writes here in verse 11, he says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, right? So that you is referring specifically to the Gentiles. He's Paul speaking to those Gentile believers in Ephesus. He says, Jews, you would call them uncircumcised. And that would be a slang term. That would be a slur. It was meant to be an insult. It, it, the equivalent would be calling a white person a cracker, right? I think I can still say that word, right? So, so that idea that, that that's a slur was meant to be an insult. And so the, for the Jews to, to call someone uncircumcised, they were unclean, they didn't belong to God, they weren't chosen, they didn't follow the law. It was everything they're not, and therefore they weren't good. So they're rallying around their Jewishness, and the enemy is everyone else. But Paul is very quick to point out, though, he says, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Basically, what he's saying is, what you guys are holding on to doesn't really matter. It's not really of power and significance because it's merely an external one. It's not the circumcision of the heart. And two, it's only done by human hands, by man, not by God. So it doesn't really matter. And that's why they're the so-called circumcision. Because really, what circumcision was a sign of those who belong to God, and the circumcision, as Paul talks about in Colossians, is one of the hearts that only God can do. So just because you're circumcised externally does not mean you actually belong to God. That's what Paul's writing here. And so he's, he's speaking to these Gentiles, but he, he says, therefore, remember. Right? He's, 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 he's trying to draw back everything he's been saying for the first chapter and a half up to this point. Right, Everything he's been talking about, who they are and what God has done, how God has rescued them. And when they were, were dead in their sins and their trespasses and they were separated from God and distant from God, and yet by God's grace, by God's love, when they didn't deserve it, he's rescued them and he's made them whole. He's saying, remember that. Remember that your redemption is by grace and not by works. And so he's trying to, to have them come back to that and so he lists off five things in verse 12 to remember where they came from. Remember that you were at that time, you were separate from Christ. You were cut off from the Messiah. You had no knowledge of who he is, no access to him. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And as a result, you were strangers of the covenants of promise. The, the promise that God had given to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob you were strangers from, you were excluded from, you couldn't have access to, you couldn't benefit from those things, and therefore having no hope. No hope, no future. And without God in this world, that's the, the miserable state they were in. What I found interesting in studying this passage and, and going through it is some of the language that even Paul uses is, is the kind of language he used today. So he talks about how, you know, in that, that word, that commonwealth, the, the Greek word there is where we get the word political from. It means citizenship and it's political. And the word for strangers is the Greek word xenos, where we get the word xenophobia for. And, and so in today's culture, we're seeing, you know, this identity politics and playing politics and xenophobia and so forth. And yet that's the language Paul's using. And so again, you can see the beauty of God's word, of Father's word, the timelessness of it, that 2,000 years ago, and it still speaks to today. So what's the answer? But now, 
But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. This, this divide and this separation has been removed and you've been brought together. So let's break down this passage. We're going to break down the part of the passage I've got highlighted here and try to really understand exactly what it is Paul's saying. So we're going to go phrase, phrase by phrase through this. And he starts off, for he himself is our peace. I love that. He doesn't just offer us peace. He doesn't just sort of bring us together and impose peace. He says he himself is our peace. He is the source of this peace. He's the cause of this peace. He's the reason for this peace, which is, which is so good because that's a, that's a limitless peace. And now the sides of the conflict, it doesn't matter how big it gets because God's peace is greater than any of that. And so what does he do? How is he the cause of peace? Who made both groups into one. That's amazing. He, he takes these two groups that, that seemingly are so different, so distinct, and yet is able to bring them together into one group. For there is neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ, for all are equal. God doesn't prefer one group over the other. He doesn't have a, a special place for Jewish Christians versus the Gentile Christians. They're all equal. They're all the same. That, by the way, was the significance of speaking in tongues, right? You had Pentecost and the birth of the church, and you had all these people speaking in different languages and different tongues and tongues of fire. And that was the, the welcoming. That was the announcement that the church has arrived on planet Earth, the body of Christ, the gathering. But then a little while later, we've got Cornelius, the very first Gentile believer. And Peter comes and they lay hands on him. And suddenly he and his household begin to speak in tongues. That's not evidence that getting saved will result in speaking in tongues. What they were doing, what God was doing in that moment was trying to show that the Gentile believer was not less than the Jewish believer. You see, if Cornelius doesn't speak in tongues, then they might say, well, the Jews had something special. You are saved, both are saved, but you got a little bit more when you got to speak in tongues. And what God was saying with that first Gentile is the exact same thing with the first Jew that was saved. They're all one. There's no distinction anymore between them. So what's, what's separated is now gone. So he goes on to say that Jesus broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. That that wall that caused so much separation, that barrier is gone. And if it's gone, then there's no longer any need for division. Well, how do you do that? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the source of conflict, which is the law. See, this is what's so powerful about this, is that, remember I said earlier, for the Jew, their whole identity was built in the law following the 613 commands, being circumcised, wearing certain clothes, not wearing other clothes, what you eat, what you don't eat, what you do on certain days, what you don't do on certain days. And Jesus got rid of it. He abolished the whole system of the law. Galatians 2.19 talks about that. How is for the through the law that we died to law. Romans 7, 1 to 6 that we looked at a couple weeks ago talks about how through the death of Jesus and our death with him, 
All of us in Christ have died to the law. The law has lost its dominion and its power over you and I. And as Hebrews 8.13 says, it is now obsolete. It's got no standing. And so because it has no standing, because it doesn't exist anymore as any kind of authority or governance over Jew or Gentile in Christ, what's the need for the barrier? Gone. And so these two groups of great mistrust, of great uh, animosity, could finally come together and say, we're one. I just got a picture of that in my mind. It's kind of neat. You, you, you watch a football game, and you have these two guys, and their whole job for three hours is to basically give the person just below a concussion. Right? Like, no one, some guys want to actually give them a concussion, but most, most good people don't actually want to give a concussion, but a little bit lower than that would work, right? I'm going to hit you as hard as I can over and over again. I'm going to run you over as many times as I can. And just that's what they do for three hours. And then after the game is over, it's really neat to me, really cool for me to see you get these players from both sides that are all Christians, they're believers. And they come together and they, they're no longer opposing one another. And they pray. And they thank God for, for, for the safety. They pray for the people who got hurt. They pray for each other. And they don't care anymore about the different sides that they were on and the battle and the fight that they were doing. They're now just one. And that's what, that's what God has done. It doesn't matter, Jew, Gentile. It doesn't matter about the differences we have. We all get to come together and now be one. So he goes on to say, Paul writes, so that in himself, he might, might, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the, through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. All right, how do, we, how do we apply that today? All right, first we have to understand, we have to recognize that there's something called uh, primary and secondary identities. Primary and secondary are not, are not in terms of, of number, but in terms of importance, right? So let me, let me give you this illustration, but I'm going to need your participation here, okay? So we're going to do some calisthenics. I'm going to get you to stand up if, if this group, if this identity applies to you, right? So first one, all the men stand up. Right? This is an identity. All right? Guys, sit down. All the ladies now stand up. All right? This will be good. We're going to get some calories burning off here, right? All right, ladies, sit down. All the men over 40 stand up. Over 40. 40 and over. If, you, if, if today is your birthday, you are now 40. It's, you stand up, right? Now, I've learned not to ask about a woman's age, so we're going to skip that one. Um, okay, got anyone, guy or girl, with blue eyes, stand up. All right? Uh, sit down, unless you have, and now brown eyes, stand up. Okay? And sit down, and uh, any of you weird people who don't have brown or blue eyes, stand up. All right? Um, uh, those with short hair, stand up. No hair counts as short hair, just so we're clear. All right. Uh, those with long hair stand up. 
Okay, I'm starting to feel a little emasculated. Sit down, sit down, okay. Um, those who cheer for the Toronto Maple Leafs, stand up. Those who cheer against the Toronto Maple Leafs, stand up. All right, we're taking note, we're taking note. That's okay, cool, cool, that's fine. Uh, those who use iPhones, stand up. All right, the rest of us, let's gather on and pray, okay. <laughs> Those who are retired, stand up. What? Retired? Those who wish they were retired, stand up. All right, all right, okay. Notice here, there's all kinds of different beliefs, all kinds of different identities that we could create and build for ourselves based on, on our, our hairstyles and lengths and eye color and gender and work and job and age and so forth, right? And, and there's so many things. That really what matters is what's going to be your primary identity? What's going to be the, the one thing that you go to more than anything else to define and describe who you are? And the apostles and scriptures, what they taught us is that what we should choose is we should, we should choose Jesus. He's the one that we should choose. Listen to what Paul says to the churches of Galatia in chapter 3, 26 to 28. He says, for you are all sons of God through, through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For all are one in Christ. Jesus has abolished. He's overcome. He's greater than any of our differences. Now notice what's so beautiful about this, that Jesus, you know, what, what, unified, what unites us I'm so excited about this. What unites us is not what we're against, but what we're for. See, it'd be really easy to think about. There's a lot of things we could be against as believers, right? We could be against Satan. We could be against sin. We could be against the world. We could be against the person who's got so much bass in their car that when they're sitting beside you, your car's rattling, right? There's great things that you and I could be against, but that's not what it is. What we're rallying around is the person of Jesus Christ as our common Savior. And so really what all I need to know about you and all you really need to know about me is that I named the name of Jesus. That's my primary. That's your primary identity. That's who we are. Everything else becomes secondary. Now, I don't say it's unimportant. Please understand, I'm not saying that. Because your culture, your race, your gender, all of that, it matters. Listen to this. Your nationality, your skin color, your accent, your language, your gender, what music you like, what sports you like, what movies and TV shows you enjoy, your preference of books over movies, who you are married to, whose child you are, whose children you are, none of those things are big enough to define your primary identity, which is who you are in Jesus and who Jesus is in you. That becomes our primary identity. Now, that doesn't mean I, I, I pretend that Nola's not black. 
I don't ignore the fact that she's black. Of course she's black. She grew up as a black woman in Canada. That's going to, that's going to give her a, a specific experience that's gone to define who she is. So I, I don't go, well, I, what do you mean Nola's black? I, I didn't know that. I just see a person. I don't see skin color. That's ridiculous. It's not wrong that she's black. It's wonderful. And it's gone into who she is. In the same way, Janice is a woman. And that's part of her experience. It's part of her makeup and part of how she's, she's experienced life in this world as a woman. I don't ignore that she's a woman. Of course she's a woman. But it doesn't define who she is. It's not the primary defining factor. So it's not your skin color, your hair color, your size, your gender, your sexual orientation, sins that we struggle with. None of that is our primary identity. And yet that's what the world is trying to do. The world is, is rallying themselves around all these various identities, and that's where they're getting life from. And it's not enough. So they crave more, and they need more, and they need more validation, and they need more power, and they need more authority, and they need more and more and more. And what we get to offer them as the body of Christ is something that will really, truly satisfy them. A greater identity than all of those things, which is who they are in Jesus. See, Jesus is always greater than what could divide us. And so now what we can do is we can celebrate diversity. We can finally celebrate that some people like country music, and it's... They're loved anyways, we'll say that, right? So we can celebrate that diversity. We can celebrate the diversity of different skin colors and genders and likes and dislikes. None of that matters because all that matters is Jesus. He has made this peace by making all of us one in Jesus. The problem is the church hasn't always done this well. We have not done well at tolerating others who are different than us within the church. You think about denominations. I mean, th there was a time when the Reformation happened that Calvin and his followers had a man executed because he, they believed he was a heretic. You don't agree with us? We're going to kill you. I have a friend of mine, he, uh, he grew up in a particular church where they felt like their denomination was the only one that was going to be saved. And so he would tell, he tells me as a kid, he would drive by these other churches of other denominations and go, wow, what a beautiful building. Too bad they're all going to hell. Because they were so narrow minded that they thought that unless you completely agree with our theology, you're not going to heaven. It's impossible. And so you get church splits and on and on. We exclude people sometimes for their sin and their past. Even today, we sometimes argue and bicker over, well, which church are you going to? Did you leave that church to go join another church? And we're missing the point. There is only one church. And that church, that ecclesia, the gathering, really what it is, is not a building. And if anything we've learned these last few weeks as we do our traveling roadshow, the church is not a building. Right? It's wherever we meet. We are gathered in Christ. That's what the church is. Ephesians 4, 2 and 6 is this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body. 
one church, Jew, Gentile, iPhone lovers, Android lovers, cat lovers, dog lovers, and unreal, coming together as one, one body, one spirit, just as they also they are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, as the body of Christ, we get to offer this to other people. We get to invite them and join and create a new identity that's based on who they are in Jesus that will define who they are and satisfy their heart's desires. That's what evangelism is. You're just inviting them to life. You're inviting them, come join us, come find life. It doesn't matter about anything else. All that matters is, do you want to get to know Jesus? And my, my friend Frank, who we heard from earlier this morning, he has this great illustration. He calls the church, he says the church ought to be the one giant blob. You just think about this big blob moving, and, and then something gets a little bit closer to that blob, and what does the blob do? Sucks it in. And then it moves over, and, and then it just, just grows because it's just, it's just absorbing more and more people. And again, it will never lose its defining characteristics. No matter how diverse it grows, it will always be all about Jesus, who's removed all of the barriers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we celebrate what you've done. We, we thank you so much for the, the freedom of this new identity in you. That we're no longer primarily defined by our gender, our race, our nationality, or anything else. And while that is important to who we are, it doesn't define us. Instead, we're defined by you. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that, that each of us could could just enjoy that and celebrate that and look to one another, to those who are in Christ and love them on that basis alone, and to those who don't yet know you, that we'd be courageous enough to offer an invitation as you lead us, and that the church, the body of Christ, the gathering, would glorify you as a result. In your name we pray, amen.